Can you turn your Bibles open or on, whatever that looks like this morning, uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 14? We are in our series in this amazing uh, book. Uh, we're we're kind of nearing halfway here uh, in 1 Samuel. And uh, we've been looking at two of these, these three main characters that are in this book. One is Samuel, this prophet that God raises up, and then Saul that we will uh, be uh, exploring today. Um, and soon we're going to be transitioning to to David is our third character. Now, Saul was Israel's first king, and he was the king that Israel wanted. Uh, they demanded. They wanted a king like other nations uh, to save them and uh, to do kingly things for them. Uh, he was tall. He's handsome. He seems to kind of check all the boxes from the outside of what a, what a king was supposed to look like. Uh, but he began to show himself unfit for this task, even, even the sort of stress fractures that we notice at the very beginning. Uh, he seemed to like lack the ability to be decisive. He was sort of passive and reactive. He, even in his sort of inaugural day, he's like hiding in among the baggage. Uh, and there's been some, small, some victories, but we saw in last week's uh, chapter, chapter 13, because of his disobedience to the Lord's command, there was this, this disqualification that came for him. It was a, it was a, a, a radical, disturbing picture of unbelief um, and the absence of faith in the Lord for Saul. Soon we're going to be in chapter 15, and we're going to come to another serious infraction and failure on Saul's part, um, marking his disqualification as king. And yet... In between chapter 13 and chapter 15, we have chapter 14. And what God oftentimes does is he, he highlights for us his work on behalf of his people. And in this chapter, we're going to see what true faith looks like. Now remember Hannah, our, our woman at the beginning of this book, modeling true faith, prophesying, praying, anticipating a leader, God's true king, that will lead not by his own might, but by faith in the Lord. Faith in the Lord who saves. And, and today's story is, is going to be fascinating as we observe a model of this kind of faith, a true faith that looks beyond circumstances and even in weakness, puts confidence and hope in the Lord's provision to save. God's king models true faith in the Lord and his power and provision to save. And our, our character the, this morning is going to model this for us. Now, if you have your Bibles open, if you remember back in chapter 13, it, it ended really badly. Like, it's, it's, the scenario is not good. Um, the, the, Israel's army has been dwindling. We find out there are actually only a couple weapons in possession of all of Israel's army. Um, Israel has to go to the Philistine Home Depot in order to just sharpen their, their, uh, their farming tools. Um, it's, it's a bad deal. Philistine raiders are around them. Samuel has left Saul, the prophet, basically has departed away from the king. And here we have tens of thousands of Philistine uh, warriors around them, and Israel's hiding out in caves and holes and tombs. And then we come to 
our episode here in chapter 14. So let me pray, and then we're going to just move through our story this morning. Lord, I thank you that we can come to your word, and as we were reminded uh, as we prayed just a moment ago, that, that we can ask. We can come to you as our good Father and ask, and we need to ask you to incline our hearts towards you today, because without your, your work in us, we will, just, we will bend away, we will bend to our own sort of selfish ways, we will try to interpret things on our own, but we, we want to come to you, we want our eyes of our heart to be open, to believe, to, to have deeper, truer faith in you, and we want to we want to taste and see that you are good today, Lord. So do that by your spirit. Open up our hearts to see, to believe on you as we look to your word and we look to Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we begin with looking and hearing about our sort of main character moving through our text this morning. Look at verse 1. And one day, Jonathan the son of Saul. Now the story begins with one day. Well, what is this one day? Well, the one day connects us to verse 22 in chapter 13. So on the day of the battle, so now this is the, the one day. Now, if, as readers, we would say, okay, that one day has come. There's a, there's a battle about to unfold, and it brings some intrigue to us, and we come to Jonathan, who we were introduced last chapter as Saul's son. But interestingly, our narrator repeats that, that relationship again for us. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul. That relationship will become something to unfold in our story. The son of Saul. And Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. So our narrator wants to, us to recall this relationship between king and his son and something going on there in that relationship. Uh, Jonathan, who is in the middle of all this sort of enemy, weaponless situation, recruits his armor bearer to head off to this, what appears to be some sort of covert mission with the enemy. But he, does, he doesn't want his father to know. He didn't tell his father. Now, why wouldn't he tell his dad about what he is doing? Was it a lack of confidence in his father? We've already seen these leadership concerns of Saul being indecisive, his faithless and foolish decision that Samuel confronted him with. Maybe, maybe Saul didn't like things happening without his name in the lights. And we saw last chapter that Jonathan won a battle back at Geba, and Saul sort of got the credit for that. And maybe John didn't want that to happen again. So whatever this, this scenario is going on, we, we don't quite know, but we, we know there's, there's something, something, some dissonance between Saul and his son. But here is something we see. Jonathan is moving towards the enemy. And what is Saul up to? Well, the camera cuts to Saul. Verse 2, Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. So Saul is staying in a cave, which can also be translated 
or sitting on, under the pomegranate tree. So he's either chilling out in a cave or he's sitting under a pomegranate tree. Maybe he's there with all his men. I don't know. I kind of maybe picture they've got their maps out and they've got the little you know, figurines that are moving around trying to plan something with war. Maybe they're just playing cards and drinking beer and you know, maybe there's, they're coming up with what they think the Vikings are going to do in the next year. I, I don't know. But the, the reader is to sort of feel and see this. Here is Jonathan moving towards planning, strategizing something about the enemy, single-handedly almost, with just his armor bearer. In contrast, Saul is sitting with his army at a distance. In someone else's presence with Saul, we read this in verse 3, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. Okay, now we hear that Saul is with a priest named, uh, named Ahijah and is in his family with Ichabod. Do you remember what happened there back in chapter 4? This, 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 this horrible, disgusting situation that unfolds with Eli and his sons who were the, the womanizing, thieving scoundrels. They died all in judgment. And one of the kids is named Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. It was, it was a horrible, dark moment. And so here is a priest whose line has been cut off with the king who has been cut off. This is like a total bad dude's vibe here. This is what we should feel. And the priest is wearing an ephod. This was uh, an apron-like vestment that the priest was to wear. And it's part, of, part of its function was to, to seek divine guidance, God's will, in certain situations. And we're... We're going to come back to it in this story, but even more next week. So here we are. Ironically, the leaders of those who should have discernment and insight, the priest and the king, it said of them, and the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. This cluelessness, this pulling away, sort of apathetic, doing nothing scenario, and then we cut back to Jonathan with who within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side. And the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sina. The one crag rose up on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. So here's the setting. We have these, these two cliffs and uh, the armies are on either side of this sort of valley, this wadi, and in the, in the middle. And one of the crags is named Bozes, which actually means slippery. And then the other one is Sina, which means thorny. They're, they're referred to as rocky crags. Actually, it's literally toothy crags. We're sort of getting this picture of these, these jaw-like teeth danger zones on either side, slippery and thorny. We sort of feel the threat of this moment, the danger of what's in between this valley and the army, meaning like no one would want to climb through these scenarios. 
except, verse 6, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. This is, a, this is amazing what Jonathan is saying. Well, first, he refers to the Philistines as the uncircumcised. Now, for Israel, their circumcision was a sign or a symbol of their holy covenant with God, of faith and right relationship with the Lord, that they were his people. So Jonathan is not simply saying Israel versus the Philistines, you know, sort of, sort of war. No, this was, this was an army, a group who are against God. Jonathan sees them as enemies, not just simply of Israel, but enemies of God's covenant and his lordship. He's thinking in reference to Yahweh, not just himself. In contrast to Saul, as we see, it seems to be only be thinking about himself. And this expression of these uncircumcised, we're going to see very soon again when, when young David will say something very similar about the Philistine giant who mocks Israel, and he would say that he would not permit this uncircumcised Philistine to defy or dishonor the living God, and he does something about it. You see, this was about the Lord. This was about the Lord for Jonathan, and, I, and this is why we will see very soon this friendship, deep friendship with Jonathan and David unfold, because their hearts were full of faith and trust in the Lord. And they wanted his honor and his glory alone. It was faith. It was faith that would say what he says. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. We just got to slow down and kind of ponder this statement for a moment. It may be, that the Lord will work for us. It could be said, perhaps. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. Now, is this doubt in Jonathan's heart, on his part? But I don't think so. It, 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 is, it is trust in the wisdom, in the power of God, and with an open-handedness to what good plan God would unfold in his wisdom and his plan. It's a faith that we would see like in three Hebrew boys who would, who would be thrown into the fire because of their faith, and they would say, He will deliver us out of your hand, O king, but if not, we will not serve your idols. It's this, this resolve to say, we don't know, perhaps God will do something different, but we're going to trust Him. We're going to trust Him. We're going to trust in His grace, we're going to trust Him in His power, we're going to trust in His covenant love for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. So an open-handed trust that rests in strong and clear confidence of what God can do. What God can do. Jonathan knew what God could do with Egypt and Pharaoh. What God could do with dumb idols like Dagon. And what God could do with his son Jesus through sickness or storms or sin or Satan. Nothing can stop or thwart God's hand working on behalf of his people in his saving. By many or by few. 
So here Jonathan absolutely knows they are outnumbered. I don't know what the armor bearer does when there's only two weapons, <laughs> but he's there with, jo- with Jonathan. But we know Jonathan has a weapon, and nobody has any weapons outside of them, outside of Saul. All of Israel, all of his people are hiding in caves, wherever they could find, little holes. And here's Jonathan acting as God's man, knowing by many or by few. This is in contrast to, to Saul, who in chapter 13, when he saw all that the men, all the men were scattering, he, he freaks out in fear and in unbelief. And yet John knows God can save with one or ten thousand. God can save with one or 10,000. It's the faith he knew of how God had delivered his people before. Jonathan was not, his faith was not isolated to just this moment. He knew of his God that has been at work for generations before him. Like his people, when they were at the waters, fleeing Egypt, back against the wall, nowhere to turn, no weapons, Pharaoh's army barreling down upon them, and God opens the Red Sea and dashes Pharaoh's army. It says in chapter 14, verse 30 in Exodus, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. This is the faith Jonathan had in his heart that Hannah sings of, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and all them he has set in the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. Jonathan knows if if the whole earth rests in and on the power and control and the sovereign governing of God, who then is this, this little army of the Philistines to God? When God is in control, when it is all in God's hand, he can save by few or many when he is on their side. It's the faith in the salvation of God soon to be written of and sung by what would be his dear friend. We, sang, we, we read this earlier. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. It is a faith that the Apostle Paul would know and write of. If God be for us, who can be against us? Jonathan is modeling the faith that God's king should have in his heart. A heart that is confident, that is resting and trusting in the Lord to save, even in the threats, even in the suffering, even in the opposition, faith in God that He wants for His people to hope in Him, to trust in Him, to rest in Him, the King and His people. This was what Jonathan was picturing for us. Even his unnamed young armor bearer models this. Look at verse 7. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, your heart, with heart and soul. It literally, it's behold, I am with you according to your heart. I love this. And notice, notice the way that the author is pulling in the language of the heart. 
Where, where do we just read about this? We just saw this in chapter 13. God is looking for a prince, a king, after his own heart. And now here, this loyal armor bearer of Jonathan is saying, I am in step with you. My heart is with your heart. It's just like mirroring. This is the kind of leader God wants to rule his people. A king from the Lord's heart with a heart full of faith in the Lord. What a, what a picture of faith, a collective faith, a faith that is not by itself, but together. As I was reflecting on this relationship between Jonathan and this unnamed armor bearer, it, just, it made me grateful for the way God has brought people into my life whose faith forges mine ahead. I mean, Jonathan could have done this alone, but he didn't. He, he, was, he was facing this with someone alongside him. And his faith increased the, the armor bearer's faith and and I am sure vice versa emboldened Jonathan's faith in that moment. Together, this, this fight of our faith, saints, we do not do it alone. We can't do this alone. It's his design. It's his plan is that God's people help others move forward in faith. We, we, we come to one another and we say, I'm not sure of the outcome, brother or sister. Perhaps the Lord would do this. Perhaps the Lord would do that. I I don't have an answer, but let's turn to Him together. Let's turn to the Lord together. And let's pray. For nothing can hinder the Lord. Nothing can hinder the Lord. So so who can you fan faith in their heart? Who who would the Lord want you to move, move alongside with that you know may be needing that today? Say, I'm with you. Let's go to Jesus together. Let's look to our God, our King, and our Savior. Let me help you see Jesus. Let me help you look to Him. Let's look to His Word. Let's pray. I need that. You need that as well. Jonathan is the kind of man that God has in his heart to lead his people. In the armor bearer, I think there's this picture of the kind of unity God wants His people then to have their heart in sync with the heart of their king. Confident the Lord will save, trusting his sovereign plan, knowing that if it's one sword or a few people or one man, armor or not, we will trust in our God. So what does Jonathan do with his faith? His faith leads to specific action, strategy. Look at verse 8. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men. And we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand. Notice the language of hand that we've seen in pattern through Samuel. And of authority. And this shall be a sign to us. So Jonathan sets up this test, this sign to discern God's direction. So they're going to pop out, maybe down in that sort of valley if they come down through one of the crags. They're going to wave to the guys up there and uh, to the enemy. And if they say, wait there, it will be maybe a, a sign that maybe they, they, they're ready to come down and, and attack them. Maybe they're, they're in a, going to be in a bad situation. Or if they say, come on up to us, 
maybe that is a sign that their guard's down, that maybe they're overconfident, and this is a green light from the Lord that they're going to take them. So, verse 11, so both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. I just would love to just wonder what that looked like. Like, hey guys, you know, whatever that looked like. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've been hidden them, where they've hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. That would have been another thing very interesting and humorous to see. I mean, this, is, this should be kind of a very funny moment. I mean, maybe the Philistines think to themselves that it, these were Israelite deserters. Maybe they're surrendering. Remember, they were hiding all in their nooks and crannies, and these guys are like, done. They pop up, and they say, hey, look at these, these Hebrews, maybe surrendering, giving up. And actually, the NIV, if you have that translation, says, yo, come up to us. Let us teach you a lesson, is what it, it could be read as. So Jonathan has their sign. They say, come on up to us. So I don't know if these guys sort of then went about their hanging out or reveling or drinking. Maybe they're talking about the Packers and maybe the destruction that's going to take place today's game. They just, so anyways, they disappear maybe back into the toothy crag and they come up on the Philistines' side. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me. The Lord has given to them in our hands of Israel. So Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within it, within, as if it were a half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field and among all the people And the garrison, even the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. So Jonathan and his armor bearer scale up the crag, stealthily, hands and feet, and they kill 20 men, just those two, the first strike. Dale Davis, commentator, says, those were 20 men who would never teach a Hebrew another lesson. That first blow, then, like a crack, sends tremors through the whole can. Actually, the NIV verse says in verse 15, the pan- there was a panic sent by God. We see an echo of what God had done in earlier in chapter 5 against the Philistines. The hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. Jonathan is not causing an earthquake. This is God now. God is on on behalf of Israel, his people, through the faith of Jonathan, this is his hand against the enemy. The raiders are trembling. The earth is quaking. There's a great panic. This is a fulfillment of Hannah's prophecy. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. God is for his people. God is working on their behalf to save And he's using the leadership and faith of one man, the son, Jonathan, to accomplish his rescue. Now our setting and character shifts. Our story goes, verse 16. And the watchmen of Saul, what are they doing? Watching. The watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked. And behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. In the Hebrew, that literally means melting. 
They're dispersed. They're melting like water running everywhere. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who has gone from us. And when they counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So our contrast again, what is Saul doing? Jonathan is fighting in his hands and knees, slaying the enemy. And Saul is, look, is kind of looking and watching. And what appears to be now an instant replay for Saul, he takes spiritual guidance matters into his own hands. Verse 18, so Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now when Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. So what's going on here? Well, Saul should have waited on and sought the divine guidance of God in the very beginning. We saw where he royally screwed that up. Yet here we have this picture of sadly what seems to be no lesson learned for Israel. The ark is present, but it seems to be used again as sort of, sort of lucky rabbit's foot, which is not good. It's, it's the object they're looking to rather than faith in Yahweh. Their faith should be in their king, their Lord. And here's Ahijah. Possibly his hand is in the ephod. We're going to see, again, elements of this later in our story next week where the ephod was used to consult God for decisions. And the priest would put his hand in the ephod for that. So the priest is there before the ark seeking God for guidance. And this is what Saul does. He says, withdraw your hand. Another instance of Saul carelessly approaching God's guidance flippantly. No respect for the word of God. It's like he's interrupting the process, telling the priest what to do. It's as if his authority is above the Lord's word. The king was to be subject and under the prophetic word, God's word, but it seems like he is doing the very opposite of that in this moment. But by Jonathan's faith and God's hand with him, Faith is stirred in all of Israel. Verse 20, Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow. They're killing each other, and there was great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, who had gone up with them into the camp, maybe some sort of mercenaries, like just for money and fear, they're like going and playing on either side of the team. Even they turned to be with the Israelites with and were with Saul and Jonathan. And likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hid themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too joined and they followed hard after them in battle. Philistines are confused, killing one another. Everyone is coming out of, out of their fearful places, joining in the battle. And this faith was contagious. Jonathan's faith and his courage being used by God to provide a successful victory in Israel. And yet, our author wants to be sure we know who's behind all of this. Verse 23, So the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle passed beyond Beth Haven. The Lord saved that day. It is God who saves on behalf of his people who could not save 
themselves. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. God is showing us in the story that his choice leader is a king that will have faith like Jonathan. In contrast to Saul, Jonathan showed faith not looking to circumstances or situation, but looking to God's character, his covenant, and his power. He uses leaders, but it is God who saves. Jonathan is forecasting a a better king of God's choosing that we will see in David. But Jonathan is also a type of Christ. He, He casts our vision, our eyes, and our heart towards someone who fulfills this nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Ultimately, not by many or by few, but by by one. By one, Jesus, the Son, the better Son of God, who is Lord, that saves. So that day of salvation points to a future day of salvation when Jesus, another man, God uses to formulate a plan not outside of the Father's knowledge, but being sent by the Father. A son commissioned by the Father with his blessings and his power into a dangerous mission with the cost of his very life for the salvation of his people. Jonathan's courage is is an example for us. It it points us to what kind of courage people should have, but, but it isn't not here for us to have a moral lesson to just be more brave and be more courageous like Jonathan. It actually shows us that we're the ones in the, in the holes, scared and fearful and weak and unable to save ourselves. And we look to the one, the son, who we want to set our faith upon, our heart upon, the Lord Jesus, our Savior, who, who made an impossible mission, even in what looked like weakness, the Roman cross, to deliver and save a people who could not rescue for themselves, who could not rescue themselves. And by his victory, by the Savior's victory over all of our enemies of death and sin and Satan, we now benefit from his saving victory and work. And what is amazing is Jonathan does show faith and courage, the sort of faith that, that many saints over the years are captured in biblical history. Those that are recounted in like Hebrews 11, those who through faith conquered kingdoms, who enforced justice, who obtained promises, who stopped the mouths of lions, who quenched the power of fire, who escaped the edge of the sword, who were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. And also that kind of faith that came mocking and flogging and mistreatment and killing. And yet, these people looked, as, as examples, looked to something by faith to a greater salvation and a greater reward. Who were they looking to? Who were they fixing their eyes and faith upon? They were looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. It is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Saints, our King, our Savior Jesus, is on His throne now, and by His saving work, He offers joy and hope and safety 
and deliverance and life through his life and death and resurrection, it is, it is a salvation we most need that he brought on that day through what he accomplished. And so how does our faith rise? Our faith, scriptures tell us, our faith comes from looking, hearing through the word of Christ, what he has done. Our faith rises and we keep our hearts fixed on Jesus, looking to Jesus. And that sort of faith brings courage. Courage like Jonathan to, to do risky things, to stand when we need to stand, bold around friends or neighbors or at work, but confidence to know that God's ultimate salvation has come for us. This is the kind of confidence Paul had. The God who saves, he knew the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Faith upon what he can do. I love the way the descriptions in our text, these images should help us feel something. I go back to those rocky, toothy crags. Those images of like a, like jaws, a mouth that are slippery and thorny teeth. We should just sort of feel the danger and the darkness and the death in that. And I, I, and I think about my life, and maybe this is where you are. Sometimes it feels like somebody hasn't just gone through that for me. I feel like maybe I'm in the midst of that, that traversing, darky crag. It, it feels like all I got is teeth clamping around me in this moment. Or I'm just I'm one step away from slipping and going down. Alone in that, unsafe in that, and yet... This is the beauty of what Jesus has done. He doesn't just send us through those traversing struggles and paths. He is the one that went through them himself. He is the one that went through them himself. And he is in the midst of those with us. If we are in Jesus, we are always in his wise and perfect love. And he does not let any of his people be lost. His comfort is there for us. In, some, in a chapter like uh, 1 Samuel 14, is just proof again and again and again as we move through these stories. A repeating of Scripture is the Lord's grace and His mercy and His love is coming to rescue people, not who have it all together, who have earned this deliverance, but who come in weakness, who come and feel they're trapped, who are in dire situations and the enemy seems too overwhelming, the pain too much, the despair overwhelming for our hearts, and we can turn in confidence to the one who works on our behalf to save. Because we have King Jesus, saints, because we have King Jesus, we know he is with us, and he is for us, and we can turn our hope towards him, confident that he is working on our behalf, despite what our situations are are telling us, or what we may feel. Perhaps, the perhaps of what our prayers may be, and we can't see, our invitation is to come in faith and say, Lord, I trust you. It's in weakness we come to him and say, Lord, we need you. It's when all of it feels like it's not going to work out, we turn our need and our hope to the one who works on our 
behalf. You and I have a Savior, King Jesus, saints, who traversed suffering and pain, even death for us, and reigns in power so that we can, we can know this promise. Nothing can hinder him from keeping his beloved. Nothing can hinder him from bringing what we most need. And nothing in the end will keep him from saving us. So we will be in that place of eternal comfort and hope with him. We look to Jesus today. We look to our Savior today to find faith that we need. And we can ask him for more of that faith as we look to Christ. So let's, let's pray and ask him for that this morning. Lord, your word tells us where faith comes from. Faith comes from hearing, beholding, looking to Christ. Lord, there is, there is likely a, a spectrum of levels of faith represented here this morning. Some of us hidden, hidden away in caves feeling like there's no way out. Some of us feeling emboldened, working through rocky crags and yet feeling alone and isolated, maybe standing victorious at the top of the other side, Lord. But we... We know, God, the point is not the measure of our faith, but the object of our faith. And so we turn our attention to you, King Jesus. Nothing can hinder you, Lord, from working on behalf of your people. And we look to the pages of Scripture. We look by, with eyes of faith to what you have already done. And we remember that you're still working on behalf of your people. And you will keep us to the end. And so what I just ask, by your spirit, you would pour out more faith into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Faith to look to you. Faith to trust in you. Faith to be emboldened by you, Lord. Maybe it's faith just to, just to find a joy for today. God, we thank you for that gift of faith. Faith for children who are lost. Faith for something broken in a relationship. Faith for your provision. Faith for healing faith, Lord, to endure. God, I thank you that you are for us and not against us. Nothing, nothing hinders you, Lord. And we thank you that ultimately you did not withhold your son, but gave your son for us. And how you not with him graciously give us all we need. Amen.